Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Listeners, welcome back to Buried Motives. We're glad you're joining us for another week. And if you're here for the first time, welcome. Yes, welcome. We love new listeners and we super appreciate our regulars as well. Yeah. So, Christy, what do you have for us this week? Well, I'm going to start today's case with a few questions. And I know you well enough that I already know your answer, but I'm putting it out to the listeners as well. And I do want you to answer Do you ever go out to eat? Yes, all the time. <laughs> We likely all do. I love going out to eat. I know you like to go out to eat. And I don't go often, but I sure enjoy when I do. It's so nice to have someone else just cook for you. And to try different things. Exactly. So here's another question. Have you ever eaten at a food truck or a mobile food cart? Yes. Those are like one of my favorite places to eat. Besides the Ma and Pa restaurants. (laughs) Yeah, delicious. When you do purchase pre-made food for yourself... Do you trust that the person making it is handling your food well and is honest with what's in the ingredients? Oh, where are we going today, Christy? (laughs) Well, I just wanted to point out that we tend to have an automatic sense of trust with the people who prepare and serve us food. I think if we didn't, then we would never eat out again. If we actually sat down and thought about it, there's no way any of us would eat outside of our house. Exactly. And that's how I felt as I was writing this case. I was like questioning myself why as a society do we not question these sorts of things like I know there's food control and all that kind of stuff but we just kind of blindly put trust into the people who are preparing our food for us which is actually kind of hilarious now that you pointed out because how often do we not even trust like the person we're walking past on the street let alone somebody that we can't even see behind closed doors of the kitchen right (laughs) and if some stranger came up to you on the street and was like hey you want to buy this hot dog for five bucks? You'd be like, get away from me. I don't know what you did with that hot dog. (laughs) So true. (laughs) But because we approach them, then it's okay. Right. Or if they have a cart on the sidewalk, we're like, oh, great. Yeah. (laughs) With a little laminated sheet that says they've been approved. Right. That anybody can make up in their basement. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Oh, you have ruined eating out for me, Christy, and I enjoy it so much. (laughs) I have a feeling it won't ruin it for us, but it did make me kind of question. I'd never really considered that before. And we'll see how you feel by the end of today's case, but it may make you second guess your decision to stop at that yummy roadside food stand the next time you get the urge. Oh no. The dirt bag we are discussing today is so evil that even after being caught, he openly admitted that he wasn't sorry for the crimes that he committed. I'm pretty certain you all are going to hate this monster of a man. He is honestly what nightmares are made of. We have been covering some nasty dirtbags lately. Ones that you just have to hate. Yeah, we're getting into it with this guy. And I'm already feeling like super squeamish. Oh no. (laughs) That's probably because you're making us record at 8.30 in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Got things to do, Christy. (laughs) I'd rather record at 2 a.m. Melissa and I are so opposite. She is ruled by the sun and I'm ruled by the moon. (laughs) Somehow we make it work. Maybe that's because opposites attract. 
Yes. Mind you, hopefully everyone listening is the opposite of this dirtbag I'm about to tell you about. And it sounds like we definitely don't want to be attracting him either. For sure we don't. Let me tell you about him. Joseph Roy Metheny was born in Baltimore, Maryland on March 2nd, 1955. He went by Joe, and so that is how I'll refer to him. One source I found said he was actually born in Cumberland, which is about a two-hour drive to Baltimore. If he was born there, he did eventually move to Baltimore and was living there when the crimes took place. Okay, so he spent most of his life in the same area then. He did. He did not venture far. It is reported that Joe had a rough upbringing. Before we go any further, I do want to put out a little disclaimer that a lot of the information the public has about Joe is from his own later confessions. Usually, finding out information from a killer himself is considered a goldmine. However, in this case, Joe had a reputation for stretching the truth. Police tried to confirm what they could, but for some things, they are just taking his word for it with a grain of salt. Hmm. A storytelling dirtbag. Yeah. Which you covered one like that not that long ago in your Christian Bala case. Yes, he was a storyteller mm-hmm. and purposely created myths or lies about himself. Yeah, which is a little different than this guy. I don't know if he's just trying to stretch the truth a bit for shock value. But on the other hand, I kind of believe him because he is so evil and unremorseful that I think he just had no problem telling them exactly what he did. Hmm. No shame. My second disclaimer is when reading parts of his statements, I will also be substituting some of his foul language. You'll know when I've added a replacement word. <laughs> Fruit? <laughs> Fruit? Is that what you said? Uh... No, he doesn't say <laughs> fruitin'. <laughs> Fruit off. <laughs> but maybe that should be the new word. <laughs> and... He's so foul, actually, that there was a lot of statements that I didn't even bother putting in because I would have been replacing every other word. Joe's father worked as a laborer, but was also an alcoholic, and from what I read, not necessarily a nice one. Some reports said that he could be abusive. When Joe was six years old, his father was tragically killed in a car accident. When his father died, he left behind a wife and six children. This meant that overnight, Joe's mom... Jean B. Metheny had to suddenly provide for and take care of all six kids all by herself. That wouldn't have been easy in the 60s. No, not at all. Jean had to work multiple jobs at a time. She worked as a bartender, a waitress, and even a canteen truck driver, delivering lunches to workers at a shipyard. Joe claims that he and his siblings were severely neglected growing up. He was super young when his dad was killed, and I'm sure his mother was gone a lot to try and provide for her kids. Well, being the sole breadwinner, that would have to take priority to put food on the table. Yeah, especially for six. And they didn't have any extended family members that you read about? That actually leads me into my next point. Joe said that his mother couldn't always take care of them, and that resulted in them having to bounce from house to house of friends and family who were willing to help his mom out and take care of them when she couldn't. He likened it to being in foster care. Hmm. Just no steady environment. Right. So there were people, though, that were willing to help her. And my guess would have been that they wouldn't have all likely gone to the same house at the same time. Oh. You probably would have been splitting those kids up. That's true. Six is a lot to take in all at once. Yeah. Probably one or two went here. One or two went there. Joe's mother later denied these accusations. She admitted to being poor and having to work a lot, but said she always took care of the kids herself. 
When Joe's mother described her son as a child, she said he was polite and kind and was an avid bicycle rider and did well in school. She said he was, quote, smart and had a good childhood. If he was neglected, it was his own fault. It was a pretty good home. Okay. <laughs> By this statement, I'm thinking the truth falls somewhere in the middle. Yep. I believe his mom had the best intentions, but if she was gone all the time to try and provide, how can she say her young son didn't feel neglected? Joe said that the neglect he felt caused him to develop depression. So the question is, is he lying or is she trying to save face? It's a little bit of both. It's always both. Yeah, because honestly, she can't say that he did not feel neglected because that's a feeling of his. Yeah, and to say if he did, it was his own fault. Yeah, that was a little weird. Yeah, that was a little bit of a suspicious comment to me as well. Or maybe she was just throwing it out there and be like, you know what? He had everything we tried and he didn't want to be a part of the group. I don't know. Yeah, or if it wasn't good enough for him, that's on him. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Maybe a bit of tough love going on there. Yeah. But you can kind of feel for both. I can't imagine what that mom would have been going through. And it would be really hard at six years old to have your dad die and then your mom always be gone. Right. I read that she usually had between two and three jobs at the same time. Oh, that would have been so difficult. Either way, Joe and his mother did not seem to have a good relationship with one another, to the point where he falsely claimed that his mother was deceased. Oh. Yeah, he would just tell people she's dead. That is not nice. His poor mother, the person that was out working long hours trying to provide for her family, and he's like, oh, she's just dead? Yeah, busting her butt to try and provide. And he was like, yeah, she's dead. Oh, that's a dirtbag move. <laughs> yeah. But to him, she was kind of dead to him. Joe's mother later commented about Joe telling people she was dead. She said, quote, maybe he just wishes I was. He pushed his family away a long time ago. That statement kind of clarifies her earlier statement saying that if he felt neglected, that was his own fault. Because if he was pushing everybody away... But pushing away was in his adulthood, not as a child. Oh, okay. Yeah. And she made this statement after the fact, after we know what he's done. Mm. But then again, when I read that, her saying he pushed his family away a long time ago, she's not taking responsibility at all either. She's putting that on him. And as we'll find out later, Joe doesn't take responsibility for his actions as well. Oh, so maybe a little bit of a learned behavior. Maybe. When Joe turned 18 in 1973, he joined the United States Army. Joe was stationed in Germany. He said he served a tour in Vietnam. Joe's mother said he was in the Army, but that he didn't serve in Vietnam. The Vietnam War ended in 1975, so it is possible, even though no one can find records of him serving there at that time. One thing that no one disagrees on about his time in the Army is that while serving his country, Joe became addicted to heroin. Oh no. Sadly, his addiction journey was just beginning. After joining the army, Joe became addicted to crack cocaine and alcohol along with the heroin. That's a wicked combination. It's definitely a recipe for disaster. Despite his addictions, Joe was able to hold down a job as a forklift driver at a wooden pallet company. People around him described him as well-spoken, smart, and polite. A far cry from the type of person he was about to become. Joe's mother later said that after her son joined the army, he pretty much stopped having anything to do with her. She said, quote, he just kept drifting further and further away. I think the worst thing that ever happened to him was drugs. It's a sad, sad story. Well, she's got that right. Mm -hmm. Were there any statements from his siblings about their home life? 
I couldn't even find his siblings' names. Oh, interesting. And a little side note in regards to the drugs and alcohol, his defense team would later try to use his drug addiction as a defense for his crimes. Oh, we have some feelings about that. We do. (laughs) Which we don't have to go into. That's right. Because his hard-earned cash went to purchasing his substances, Joe was often homeless. He would frequently stay in makeshift camps in the south part of Baltimore. He would sleep in a sleeping bag inside tents or under bridges. Not an easy life. Mm-mm. And one that's really hard to get out from under. Yeah. On the streets, Joe was coined the name Tiny. This was an ironic nickname because nothing about him was tiny. Joe was six foot one and weighed about 450 pounds. Oh. He was a big guy, which makes what he does even that much more terrifying. It would be extremely hard for an average-sized woman, or even a man, to fight off a guy built like Joe. Yeah, that is terrifying. I'll be posting a picture of him on our socials. That's so unnerving. But in it, you can see his full stature. And I'm going to actually show Melissa. I didn't show her a picture of him yet, but (laughs) this picture is terrifying to me. So you got that madman face. Oh, just wait. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Her eyes just went huge. What was he doing in that picture? Was he just about to attack somebody? I don't know. Or was he posing? I don't know where that picture was taken. It looks like it might have been even after he was picked up. Yeah, he looks like he's at the precinct. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, you have to go to our social medias to check that out because that is disturbing. Yeah, if you saw this man coming after you, you might need a new pair of pants. Yep. (laughs) Mine would be peed for sure. (laughs) Although Joe was described as well-mannered, there was also a violent part of him. Allegedly, he would often get into fights at local bars with other men. He gained a reputation as being a bar brawler and had many charges placed against him, things like drunken disorderly or assault. And was he usually the instigator? I don't know that, but I wouldn't put that past him. Hmm. Because usually if one person is getting into multiple bar fights, you've got to be the instigator a lot of the time. Well, and I'm thinking with his propensity to kind of tell stories, I'm wondering if he gets himself in trouble and and is telling a story and then somebody's like, yeah, right. And then he has to challenge them because they've challenged his story. Could be. Eventually, Joe met a woman and fell in love. She too was heavily addicted to drugs and alcohol, which when you put the two together, it wasn't a good mix. The two got married and Joe was able to straighten up enough to purchase or rent a trailer for them. Was he trying? Maybe. And I'm going to apologize that there are a lot of people in this case whom there are no names recorded for. Joe's wife is one of them. It is possible that names could have been left out of the case reports to protect some of those involved. Oh, that often happens when they're redacted. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely not out of disrespect that I'm not including their names. But she was one of those names that I could not find anywhere. Okay. Joe and his wife welcomed a baby boy into their family and seemed to just be living their life as per their usual until something happened that changed everything. One day in 1994, Joe came home from work, as one does, but this night, when he entered their trailer and turned on the light, he realized that the place had been cleaned out. (gasps) She left him? She did. Oh, and he already has abandonment issues. Yeah. He was working as a truck driver and had been working overtime. While gone, his wife had taken everything, including their son, and had taken off. And I always have so many questions when I hear of this happening. Moving is a huge job. 
I don't know how you pack up and clean out a house so quickly. If he was gone on an extended trip while he was trucking, then she'd have some time. It didn't sound like he was gone that long. Okay. But what a huge thing for this to happen to him. Because as a child, he felt his father was taken away from him. And now she's taking his child away from him. Oh, yeah. And so suddenly, like overnight, like a tragic car accident, there's no warning for. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense why this was such a trigger for him. Yeah. You can see how it would be. Yeah. This discovery was a surprise to Joe. When he left for work, he had no idea his whole family and all his belongings would not be there when he returned home from his shift. There was nothing left in the house. Oh, man. Joe was convinced that his wife had left him for another man and had moved in with this man and taken their son with her. He knew there was also a chance that they were just living on the street somewhere with this guy. That would be so hard. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, Joe lost it. He saw Red and was set on finding her, their son, and this man who had taken them away from him. Is he going to take it out on a whole bunch of strangers uh -huh. looking for this man? Yep. Oh, no. He later said that this incident was the catalyst for the murderous rampage that would ensue soon afterwards. So is he a rampage killer then? He's just a killer. Okay. He does a spree killing and then other murders as well. Okay. About his wife leaving, Joe said, quote, My old lady had taken everything, including my son, and left me. Her leaving was not my problem, but she took my six-year-old son with her. <gasps> he was six at the time too? Yes. Oh, man, this is going to be huge triggers. Uh-huh. He continued to say, she was a crack addict and a worthless piece of crap. I would have paid her to get out of my life. All she had to do was take my son over to my mother's house and she could have had everything else and be gone. Joe went on the hunt. He spent days searching the streets for his wife and child. He checked out all the usual hangout spots, the places they would go to purchase drugs, halfway houses, and one particular bridge named Hanover Street Bridge in Baltimore that a lot of drug users and homeless people were known to hang around and sometimes sleep under. It was a place they both knew well. The area was referred to as Tent City. About six months later, Joe found out that his ex-wife had moved to the other side of town with a man and had turned to sex work to support her drug habit. Where was his son? He learned that his ex was arrested for drugs and that their son had been apprehended by social services and placed in foster care. No, because he hated bouncing around and he equated his life to being in foster care, which was a horrible life. Yeah. He's going to hate this. Yeah, totally a parallel to his childhood in his eyes. Mm. His ex had been charged with child neglect and child abuse along with her drug charges. So he probably didn't even know exactly what she had done to their son to have those charges pressed against her. Oh, man. I can just feel his rage building. Mm -hmm. But abuse and neglect, and that's how he felt his life was. And like you said, six years old, six years old, too many similarities. So you can see why he'd be triggered. And then at the time that it happened to him, he couldn't do anything about it as a child. And now he's this big, honking, huge man that gets into bar brawls and does something about it. Yeah, so you could see why he would hyperfixate on this. He yeah. is not going to let this go. And I do want to point out that there is no updated information regarding their son after this. So let's hope he was okay and is enjoying a better life. Mm -hmm. I couldn't find anything. And honestly, I didn't look too hard because I just feel like he should be able to live his life without being tied to Joe Metheny. As we just discussed, 
Finding out that his son was taken away only fueled Joe's anger, and he was more determined than ever to find them. He said, quote, I had no chance of going to social services and trying to get my son back due to my past criminal record. So I took it upon myself with the hatred I had for these two who lost my son to go looking for them. I had found out from someone that they was going under that bridge and getting high with some homeless mother effers who lived under that bridge. So he's like this vigilante killer then in his eyes. In his eyes. He's wanting revenge Mm -hmm. for having his son taken away. Because he knows he's not qualified to get his son back. Joe decided to go to the bridge and look for his ex-wife. To his dismay, she wasn't there. There was, however, two homeless men under the bridge. He said they were passed out on a stinking old mattress when he found them. He was sure they were the guys that he had been told of that got high with his ex and her new man. The men's names were Randy Piker and Randall Brewer. Both men were 33 years old at the time. Joe approached the two men and asked them if they had seen his wife or knew where she was. They said they didn't know her or where she was. Joe became increasingly irate. He didn't believe them. He thought they were lying and knew more than what they were admitting to. Joe started to walk away, but his fuming must have grown so intensely that he decided to turn around and take his frustration out on the two unsuspecting men. Oh, those poor guys just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Exactly. And it just so happened that people were like, yeah, they're hanging out with these couple of guys under the bridge. That's where they're doing their drugs. Mm -hmm. Joe had been carrying an axe with him. What? And I assume he was carrying it in case he actually did find his ex-wife. So he did intend to kill somebody. He was wanting to kill his wife, I believe, because he had this axe in hand and was asking people, have you seen her? Where is she? I got to find her. And so maybe they did know her, but weren't going to say anything because here's this ginormous man with an axe asking where she is. Yeah. And I'm sure he wasn't asking nicely. No, I was just thinking that. Who would turn over somebody else? Well, if they're threatening your life, though. But he wasn't yet. He was just asking. He started to walk away and then he was like, no, that's it. And he turned around. Mm. Joe proceeded to do the unthinkable and simply walked up to the men and viciously killed them both. He didn't stop at just killing them. Joe kept striking them with the axe until he had completely mutilated both Randy and Randall. Just overkill, hey? Uh Uh-huh. Just full of rage. Full of rage. He later said that he left them on the same mattress that he had found them on, except, quote, they were dead from being chopped up. And just, like, matter-of-factly. Yeah. Like, no remorse. Nope. Like I said, he is just so cold-blooded. He is such a dirtbag. Mm-hmm. Joe was not satisfied after killing the two men. He spotted a woman and lured her down over towards him. He used the offer of drugs to get her to go with him under the bridge. He proceeded to get the woman high and then questioned her about his ex. He said she acted like she didn't know anything about his ex's whereabouts. Because he thought the woman knew and chose not to share the information about his ex, Joe viciously beat the woman. And remember, he's six foot one and 450 pounds. Versus a homeless woman addicted to drugs. Hmm. After mercilessly beating the woman, he raped her and then ended her life. And I believe he strangled her. Joe was still not satisfied. Well, he hadn't found his wife yet. No. Joe threw this woman's body in nearby bushes and lured another woman down by the bridge. Joe did the exact same thing to the second woman as he did the first. He got her high, and when she couldn't answer his questions, he beat her, he raped her, and then murdered her. 
As Joe was about to throw the second woman into the bushes, he noticed a man down the river who was fishing. He said the man was looking in his direction. He didn't know for certain if the man saw what he had done or not. Joe decided it was better to be safe than sorry. Oh, man. Without hesitation, Joe grabbed a steel pipe that was laying nearby and ran towards the man. That would have been terrifying. Yeah. Imagine that picture of him that I showed you running towards you with a steel pipe. When he approached the man, he used his 450 pounds of force and struck the man on his head, splitting it wide open. He just killed five people. Yeah. Joe took the man he had just killed and the bodies of the two women that he had previously massacred and set them in the river. He placed rocks on top of them to weigh them down. And I understood his statement to mean that he kind of buried them with the heavy rocks as opposed to tying rocks to them and throwing them in the water. Okay. He was extremely strong, so setting large heavy rocks on top of them likely wasn't too challenging. Hmm. It just gives me such a eerie image, thinking of all this happening late at night under the bridge, all five of them being murdered, and so viciously. Right, but I'm thinking at the same time, because he's weighing them down, He's actually keeping them at the crime scene instead of sending them downriver where they would have floated away and they wouldn't have been attached to all the evidence of the crime scene. Well, actually, those three bodies are never found. What? Mm-hmm. How are they never found? This might sound a little bit gross, but I don't know if in the bloating process in the water, if that was strong enough to push the rocks off and they did float away. Oh, okay. That's where my brain went. Right. Because otherwise I'm thinking he's tying them right to the crime scene. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he's not thinking this through. No. He's not thinking any of this through because huh. the other two men he just leaves on the mattress. Yeah. About this spree killing, Joe said, quote, that was a very busy night for me. Five murders within about seven hours. I washed up in that river and cleaned up the crime scene as much as I could, then left. <laughs> it couldn't have been very clean if he left the two bodies on the mattress. Uh-uh. And I thought about it, he probably had to have been soaked in blood after killing those two men with the axe when he brought those other women down to the bridge. And they still came. Mm-hmm. Ugh, the lure of drugs is so strong. It's so intense. And how much more terrifying would he have looked? He'd already killed four people, had their blood all over him, and then he's running at that guy fishing in the river. Yeah, and we don't even know if the man saw anything. Ugh. He might have just been looking down river, not even noticing that joe was standing there that's crazy he is honestly so cold-hearted people like joe who can take someone's life without even giving it a second thought are terrifying Mm-hmm. but i bet you he just feels like he's totally justified oh yeah and he'll make a statement about that later that i'll read oh randy and randall were found on the mattress on august 2nd 1995 an autopsy of both men concluded that the murder weapon was an axe to complicate the investigation, police found the axe that Joe had used to murder the men in a rival tent city. On the same day that Randy and Randall's bodies had been discovered, a different man named Larry Amos used the same murder weapon to kill a man named Everett W. Dowell. Oh man, that would be so complicated. Yeah, so while they find these bodies, this other man is using the same murder weapon to kill somebody else. Like the exact same, not just another axe, but the exact same axe. The exact same axe. So where did he get the axe from? Oh, he must have just found it because Joe didn't take it with him. He'd even switched. He killed the two men with the axe, strangled the two women, and then used the pipe to kill the other man. Right. So the other guy found Joe's murder weapon, not Joe found his murder weapon. Right. 
Okay. Because this was later. This is on August 2nd when the two men were found. Oh, that would be such a tricky investigation. Yeah, because you would assume that this Larry Amos was the one who had murdered these two men because he was found killing someone else with the same axe. What are the chances of the same murder weapon being used by two different murderers on two different days? Yeah. That's crazy. It really is. It kind of blew my mind. So you can see how the police would have been totally off course. Mm -hmm. And a little side note, Larry was sentenced to eight years in prison for that murder, but he only served a very small portion of it behind bars. Was his victim homeless as well? I assume so. It was in another tent city over on the other side of town. That's so sad. I just had the thought, like, that little axe had no idea what it was going to do when it was created. Because <laughs> how true. often would that happen, that one murder weapon would be used by two different murderers? Yeah, like, that is bizarre. It really is. Despite the sidetrack for the police, it didn't take too long before Joe was arrested for the two men's murders. Being his size and a regular in the area, I'm assuming it would be hard for any eyewitness to mistake him for somebody else. Oh, for sure. He was placed into custody at Baltimore City Jail to await his trial. You know how we often talk about a time in a case when things could have turned out differently? Is this that time? This is that time for this case. It was concluded during his July 1996 trial that there wasn't sufficient evidence to prove that Joe murdered Randy and Randall. So maybe he did a little bit better of a job of cleaning up than I originally gave him credit for. Maybe. The trial only lasted one week. This meant that Joe was released as a free man. Oh, man. If only, right? Mm -hmm. If only. Because what happens next proves that Joe did not learn any type of lesson while incarcerated. And had he been convicted of Randy and Randall's murder, perhaps what happens next might have been prevented. Because he was in jail for a while. It was it was at least a year that he was in jail waiting his trial. Hmm. But now that he's gotten off, it's just going to, I don't know, I think he would get more bold with it. Mm-hmm. Like I've already gotten away with five murders. They were only convicting him of two and he had done five. Yeah. And then he's not even convicted of those two. Right. Not to mention all his previous charges of assault and battery that he didn't do jail time for. Yeah. He would be feeling pretty invincible. Yeah, he would. I think a man that size would feel that naturally anyway. And then this would just add to that. True. Joe went back to his old boss and convinced him to give him his job at the pallet company back. There was a small trailer on the premises. Joe convinced his boss to let him stay in this little trailer at the 3200 block of James Street in exchange for Joe keeping an eye on the premises. Because of this agreement, Joe's boss trusted him with keys to the main building as well as to the front gate. Joe later said, quote, The company was on a dead-end road and was very isolated. It was perfect for what I wanted to do. Oh no, what has he got planned next? Is he going to bring people in and torture them for information? It's going to be bad. People would argue that Joe first killed out of rage, but then developed a thirst for blood to continue killing. However, it would come out that Joe had actually killed a woman the year prior to going on his crazed spree. What? So those two men under the bridge were not his first murder victims. I am shocked. I was totally buying into this rage idea. So he's just an all-out dirtbag. He is. But I do think that night under the bridge was rage-fueled. But this was a bit of a plot twist to learn that he had killed the year prior. Mm -hmm. In 1994, Joe murdered a woman named Kathy Ann Magaziner. 
She was 39 years old and had multiple arrests and convictions for sex work in South Baltimore. Joe would ultimately confess to her murder. I will go over what happened now, but it would be years later that he was charged for what he did to her. And so they eventually catch him and then he just starts spilling the beans? He confesses to everything after. Oh. Yeah. That's how we have this information. And that's where I mean most of what we have is out of his own mouth. But he doesn't take responsibility for it or he does? Oh, no, sorry. He takes responsibility. He just doesn't have any remorse. Exactly. Okay. During his later trial, jury members had to listen to a tape recording of Joe confessing to Kathy's murder. When asked about the murder, he admitted to strangling her. He said he buried the body. Shockingly, Kathy didn't stay completely buried. Joe said, quote, I dug it, meaning her skeleton, up and took the head out. I just took the head and threw it in a box in the trash. Why? I just because it was showing above the ground? But if he had to dig it out. It was in the ground. It was a shallow grave, but he just later decided, oh, I'm going to go take her head. Some speculate that he maybe did some unholy things to that head. I didn't really want to go there, and he didn't admit to that. But he did remove her head and threw it in the trash, put it in a box and threw it away. That is disturbing. Mm-hmm. When police later found her remains, she was found with part of her skull missing. She had to be identified through dental records. So I believe her bottom jaw was probably left. Joe showed police where she was buried. He buried her in a shallow grave near the Joe Steen and Sons Pallet Factory where he worked and later lived. She remained buried there for over two years without anyone noticing even though her grave was only about two feet deep. He also buried her purse and clothing in different spots on the property. So they eventually identified her from him telling them where her purse was buried. Yes, he took the police right to where she was buried. And what was his motive for killing her? He doesn't really say. Just, hey, I killed this woman. Yeah. Dirtbag. When asked what her name was, he coldly answered, haven't a clue. Oh, wow. So cold-hearted. Yeah. He's just evil to his core. I sometimes try to find some type of redeeming qualities, but I'm not finding it here. He did, however, explain that he murdered her for a sense of power and because he got a rush out of it. Oh, there's the bloodlust. Mm-hmm. It is believed that Joe became addicted to this feeling or rush of killing. And we know he has an addictive personality. And so once he killed one, he had that thirst. But he waited so many years in between. That we know of. But he's confessed to all the other ones, so why not confess to more? That's true. So he waited a year, which isn't uncommon with serial killers, actually, at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's go back to when Joe was acquitted of Randy and Randall's murders and is now living at the pallet company where he went back to work. Where he's already buried one victim. Right. He was released from jail in August, and by November of the same year, 1996, he would murder yet another woman, Kimberly Lynn Spicer. She was only 23 and was battling a crack cocaine addiction. He reportedly met up with Kimberly at the Borderline Bar and Restaurants in Artibus, which is a suburb of Baltimore. These people that he's killing are just so vulnerable. Oh, he purposely picks vulnerable people. Mm. It seemed like they already knew each other. It was stated that Kimberly thought Joe was kind and sometimes even felt sorry for him. And that we found out from statements from her mother later. Okay. Joe brought her home and stabbed her to death with a black-handled knife in the chest and then hid her body at the factory. It is assumed that he also raped and beat her before taking her life. He did that with all his women victims. And I can't remember if I put this in here later, but he did eventually bury her at the property as well. But at first, he just hid the body. 
for I think almost a month, like three, four weeks. Was that so he could revisit it? Maybe. Ugh. Only a few weeks later, on December 8th, 1996, Joe attempted to rape a 37-year-old woman named Rita Kemper. Joe brought Rita to his trailer and shared some of his drugs with her. Joe started trying to have sex with Rita, but she refused and ran out of his trailer. Joe managed to grab Rita and drag her back into his trailer with him. Once inside, he began beating her. He forced down her pants and began trying to rape her. While doing this, he said to her, quote, I'm going to kill you and bury you in the woods with the other girls. Oh my goodness, that would have been terrifying. Yes. So she fights. She does. She is a queen. By some miracle, Rita managed to escape the grasp of her 450-pound attacker. Joe had locked the tall fence surrounding the pallet factory, and so he didn't think Rita would be able to escape. As Rita ran towards the fence, she noticed a stack of pallets set beside the fence. She was able to climb the stack of pallets and get over the fence, freeing herself. Rita immediately ran to the police. Rita later said that you could see the evil in Joe. They had known each other prior, and she stated that she feared she was going to die on that frightful night. She said, quote, Whatever Tiny wanted to do that night, he was going to do. He told me I could scream as loud as I wanted to. I knew that he wasn't going to let me out of there alive. I wasn't letting this man take my life from me without a fight. Good for her. Mm-hmm. In Joe's later confession, he said this about the attack on Rita. Quote, I got her in there and started to rip her clothes off and knocking the hell out of her. She was screaming, but there was no one around to hear her except me. And I just kept on laughing at her. Oh my goodness. I turned around for a split second and that was my mistake. For she ran out the door before I could get to her. There was an eight foot chain link fence with barbed wire on top of it around the front of the company. There was a stack of wooden pallets next to the fence about 10 feet high. That bee scaled those pallets like a monkey and jumped the fence and ran down to the main road where some guy in a pickup truck picked her up and took her to a nearby gas station where they called the cops. Well, I knew the cops were on their way, but I didn't run. I gathered up her clothing, grabbed the keys to the gate, and went out and opened it. As soon as I stepped out the gate, a cop car pulled up, and the cop jumped out and pulled his gun on me and told me to get on the ground. And that is where it all came to an end. <laughs> He's just giving up. Yeah. Okay. Well, he knew he was done. Right. They knew each other before. She got away. He knew they were coming for him. Right. I was envisioning him making up some story about how it was all her fault. She made up a story to tell the police. Yeah, he's a liar. You'd think he would have come up with a lie. Yeah. But no, he even opened the gate for the police. He was like, okay, open the gate and waited for them. Police but probably were not expecting that. No. Police actually commented that when they showed up at the pallet company where Joe worked and lived, they were expecting to have a huge fight on their hands. Joe was well known with the police for his temper because of the charges he had gotten during bar fights. His size had them worried. Thankfully, Joe went easily with the police. Huh. One of the arresting officers would later testify that when they arrested Joe, Joe told them they didn't need to be scared. The officer replied that he wasn't scared of him. Joe replied, quote, you ought to be. That would have been chilling. Oh, yeah. I could totally picture that whole conversation happening. I'm just envisioning, was it the old wrestler that was like Andre the Giant? And he was how a wrestler. He, yeah, he was a wrestler, <laughs> but that he was presented as this super kind, timid person and then would bash people. Yeah. 
he almost seems like he has dual personality. Yeah, because everyone said he was polite and well-mannered. He was well-spoken. He was actually really intelligent. Not genius level, but was but yeah. yeah a smart guy. Hmm. While being interrogated, Joe decided to confess to murder, including the murders of Kimberly and Kathy. He said, quote, I killed her. I'm a very sick person. I need help. Perhaps wanting help was why Joe was cooperative. He even took the police to where he had buried Kathy. Her body was found, like I said, with most of her skull missing, confirming his story of digging her back up to remove her head. Joe claimed that he had their remains buried in seven different holes, but he buried all the evidence which likely made up those extra holes. Because I don't believe he dismembered those two girls, just removed the one head. Okay. And this too kind of speaks to me that maybe he wasn't lying about the things that he confessed to because what he said had happened had happened. Yeah, like his story was believable or at least meshed with Rita's version of events. Yeah. And they're finding evidence where he's telling them it's going to be. So it sounds like he is telling the right stories. I honestly believe that he is. He was just known to be a liar. And there's a lot of victims that they never do find the bodies. And so they can't actually charge him. Okay. With some of these murders. Does he have a psychological assessment that tells him that he's like a sociopath that just can't feel remorse? Not technically. Some give their opinion, but not an official diagnosis. It just seems so interesting that he's so willing to tell them about it, and he's self-reflective enough to identify that he needs help with it. Mm-hmm. And that he's turned himself in now. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah, he did. He recognizes that he's caught, and he turns himself in. And instead of just copying to that one crime, he lets them know about everything else that they haven't even connected him to. Yeah. They wouldn't have even known that those bodies were in the ground at the pellet company. That is interesting. And Joe surprisingly confessed to multiple other murders. Between 10 and 13, he said. What? He said that most of his victims were young white women who worked in the sex trade or were homeless people. Most of them were addicted to heroin or cocaine. Joe said that he brutally raped each one of them. He also told police that he discarded most of their bodies in the Patapsco River. The river was searched, but no bodies were found. Hmm. If Joe didn't throw his victims in the river, what did he do with them? Where were all these bodies? What Joe told the authorities next, I'm fairly certain they were not expecting to hear. Oh, this is where we're going to get the tie-in for the restaurant questions, aren't we? Absolutely. Oh, gross. Joe said that after he was released from jail, when the charges were dropped regarding Randy and Randall's deaths, he struck again. Joe admitted to killing two more sex workers who refused to give him information regarding where his ex-wife was hanging out. This time, instead of hiding their bodies in the river or beneath the ground, Joe decided that he would make use of them. Joe said that he brought the women's bodies home with him and proceeded to dismember them. Or I guess I should say he more like butchered them. He placed their meaty parts in individual Tupperware containers and placed them in his freezer. Did he eat them? Yes but he wasn't the only one. Oh. On the weekends, Joe opened a barbecue stand on the side of the road. And I'm not sure if he did this before killing these women or just started it then. You are ruining street meat for me. I'm sorry. I am. But it ruined it for me too. So it has to be ruined for you. At this stand, Joe sold real roast beef and pork sandwiches. Unbeknownst to his hungry customers, they were getting more than they bargained for when they bought a burger from Joe. Joe claimed that he would take a Tupperware container out of his freezer that contained human flesh and grind it up. 
Joe would then mix the human meat with ground pork and beef to make patties. Joe admitted to first tasting it for himself. He said it was good and that human tastes very similar to pork, so it was easy to hide it in the burgers. No way. No one suspected that they were eating human flesh when eating one of his burgers. I'm trying not to gag so it doesn't make our listeners gag, but that is totally gross. It really is. When he was running low on his special meat, as he referred to it, he would search for another homeless person or sex worker to beat, rape, murder, and then butcher. Apparently, when he kidnapped Rita, he was planning to use her for more meat since he had used up what he had stored. Oh, man. Christy, that's so gross. And can you imagine Rita later finding out that that's what he was planning to do with her? No, that was her fate? Yeah. Because Joe did this, people were literally eating the evidence of his crimes. And this is part of the reason why he can't be charged with some of these murders. When the public found out this information, they were sickened. No kidding. I read a report that stated that one man even eventually ended his own life after he found out. Oh. He just couldn't cope with the idea of having eaten someone. And honestly, the only thing worse than cannibalism is inflicting cannibalism onto other people without their knowledge. That would have been so hard to overcome. And it kind of gave me Robert Picton vibes. Oh, totally. Yeah. But in the Picton case, it was just kind of like it wasn't confirmed that he did that. Well, and in this one, they can't confirm that he did either. He's just telling them. But all that meat had been consumed, so there's no physical evidence to actually corroborate his story. And so therefore, some people are skeptical that Joe served ground up human for others to consume. It seems like he's been pretty truthful with his story so far. Yes. And with that being said, his own attorney stated that she had no reason not to believe him and commented about how kind and gentle Joe was during their conversations. She said, quote, I have always found him to be forthright and honest. I think he's telling the truth. As he's telling her about feeding people, people. Yeah. So like you said, this dual personality, because even she's saying he's kind, he's honest, but I do believe him that he's done all of these terrible things. So bizarre. Joe was put on trial in 1998, but there was only enough evidence to convict him of two of the murders, those of Kimberly Spicer and Kathy Magaziner. They were the only bodies found. He was charged for the murder of a 28-year-old woman named Tony Lynn Ingracia, but the charges were dropped due to lack of evidence. Because he fed her to people. Yeah. Pure evil. Mm-hmm. And her father made statements just about how evil Joe had to be. Oh. He had also been tried the year prior for the kidnapping and attempted sexual assault of Rita Kemper, which he was found guilty of. He was, though, however, acquitted of attempted murder charges for her. Didn't he just say that that's what his plan was? Was he had ran out of meat and planned to kill her for that? Yeah. I guess maybe because they had not gotten to the point where he was trying to kill her, like where he had actually attempted to kill her. But that was his intention. It was. Oh, that's sketchy. I'm just assuming that that's why, because those charges were dropped. Well, and I guess it didn't really influence the outcome, because Joe was sentenced to 50 years in prison for the kidnapping and attempted sexual assault charges for Rita Kemper. He then was given the death sentence for the murder of Kimberly Spicer. For the death of Kathy Magaziner, he was given a sentence of life in prison. So these were all different trials. Right. Something really sad that happened was on the first day of Kimberly's trial, her father suffered a heart attack and died. Oh, no. The stress of it all? Her mother believes that it was attributed to the stress of it. She said, quote, 
God is upholding me. I know Kimberly is in heaven now and my husband's there with her. That'd be so difficult to be the one left behind. Oh, so heartbreaking. In the year 2000, Joe's death sentence was overturned and reduced to life in prison without parole. What? Originally, the death penalty was given because it was believed that Joe had murdered her while committing a robbery, but the motive was later believed not to be robbery. Kathy's mother argued that because he buried his victim's belongings, it should have made him eligible for the death penalty, that that would have proven robbery. And the decision was a close call. It was split four to three in favor of overturning the death penalty. Sometimes I do not understand the semantics of the law. I know. That he could get the death penalty if he robbed them, but if he fed them to other people, then he couldn't get the death penalty. Right. And not rob them, but that if that was the motivating of factor it. of the murder. And like you just expressed, in my opinion, the murders themselves should have been reason enough to elicit <laughs> the death penalty. So I'm not sure why it needed robbery as the motive. But like I said, I don't believe the murders were motivated by robbery. No, we they were motivated to fill his freezer. Yeah, exactly. Ugh. We have never claimed to be experts of the law, especially when it can change from state to state, province to province, or country to country. I just found it interesting that this is what the law was in Maryland at the time, and I'm not sure if it still is. During the trials, detectives described Joe's crimes as brutal sexual assaults that seemed to suggest a psychotic aggression towards a certain type of woman, which to me, that woman would be his ex, right? Mm -hmm. They were all drug addicts, sex workers, homeless, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Joe admitted one regret. He, oh, so he is remorseful. Well, not really. He admitted that his sole regret was that he didn't have the opportunity to kill his ex-wife and her new boyfriend. Oh, no. Many believe that the murder started out as revenge, but then quickly turned to enjoyment for Joe. It was during Kimberly's trial when he made the statement about getting enjoyment out of killing. He said it gave him a rush or a high. He said he, quote, had no real excuse why, other than I like to do it. Just evil. And I'm not buying that revenge was the motive because he had killed prior to that. Right. At his sentencing, Joe asked to be put to death. He had the audacity to say, quote, the words, I'm sorry, will never come out, for they would be a lie. I am more than willing to give my life for what I have done, to have God judge me and send me to hell for eternity. The only thing I feel bad about in any of this is I didn't get to murder the two mother effers I was really after. And that's my ex-old lady and the guy she hooked up with. Well, now I'm super glad that he didn't get the death penalty. Yeah, we never want to give these dirtbags what they ask for. At around 3 o'clock p.m. on August 5th, 2017, Joe was found unresponsive inside his prison cell at the Western Correctional Institution in Cumberland, Maryland. He was pronounced dead soon after being discovered. He was 62 years old and had served 20 years behind bars for his crimes. And I just got to say good riddance. <laughs> That's what I was just going to say. Were you? <laughs> yeah, good riddance. Mm -hmm. Was it natural causes or had he killed himself? There was an investigation into it, but they didn't really say. I couldn't find a real official report. But he did have an isolated cell, so he wasn't with someone else to be murdered or anything like that that I could find. So I'm assuming it probably was natural causes, to mm. be honest. I will end with one final statement made by Joe regarding the human burgers he made. No. Prepare yourself. He said, quote, They were quite nice. The human body tastes very similar to pork. If you mix it together, no one can tell the difference. So the next time you're riding down the road and you happen to see an open pit beef stand that you've never seen before, 
make sure you think about this story before you take a bite of that sandwich. Oh, and I totally will. Thanks a lot, Joe Metheny. You have ruined it all. And that is the story of a man who was so unbelievably rotten that he killed vulnerable men and women for his own gratification and who may or may not have turned some of his victims into roadside sandwiches, the incredibly evil dirtbag, Joe Metheny. You have ruined street meat for me, Christy. I am never eating at a roadside stand again. I'm going vegetarian. (laughs) (laughs) I don't believe you, but... (laughs) But I believe that you believe it right now. (laughs) In this moment, that is how I feel. Yeah. I wonder if I will think about that the next time we stop. (laughs) I know, or if any of our listeners will. Sorry, guys. And I just thought, how cheeky of him to leave that as a statement. Yeah. That just shows absolutely no remorse. Yeah. He wants us to think of him next time we stop at a food truck to get a burger. Ugh. I am curious, listeners, let us know on our socials if you now have second thoughts about stopping at those roadside stands. (laughs) I think we will for a while. But don't let that stop yourself from going out and treating yourself. We do have to blindly put that faith and trust into our food service workers. And there can't be many dirtbags like Joe out there. Let's hope not. But speaking of dirtbags, we'll be back next week where Melissa will tell us about another one. There is no shortage of them. Until then, see ya. Bye. (laughs) Is this a little bit better? Christy sounds better. If only I was better. Positive thoughts. So, Christy, what did do you, you just click your pen? I did. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Fidgety today. <laughs> he swore like a trucker. Mm-hmm. Was he a trucker? Actually, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no offense to our truckers. We love you. <laughs> it's just the saying, isn't it? No, it, it is. Isn't. Or is it swearing like a sailor? Oh, yeah. Swearing like a sailor. <laughs> Because you're talking about him living under bridges and like, it's really hard to get out from underneath the bridge. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's true. That bridge can be a metaphor for a lot of things. (laughs) So true. (laughs) And one particular bridge, and one particular bridge named Hanover. Is it better to record in the morning when I'm like super fidgety and like ready to go? Or at nighttime when I'm like (laughs) fidgety? After merc- after mer- mercilessly. Man, maybe I blanked out. Maybe. Sorry. <laughs> it's too it's too terrible. Your mind's like, no, I can't take uh. it in. <laughs> and funny fact with that. <laughs> funny fact. Chrissy, we're no. talking about rape here. <laughs> <laughs> no, dumb fact for me oh. is it kept referring to Joe being like the, the Kemper trial. Oh. And I thought he they were talking about like Ed Kemper, the serial killer. And I was like, how is he connected to Ed Kemper? And so I was like trying to find like the connection. And then I was like, no, Rita Kemper, stupid. (laughs) He wasn't connected to the Ed Kemper. I was like, this is going to blow my mind. But no, her last name was Kemper. (laughs) Okay. Are you happy with that? I think, yeah, yeah, that sounded good.
Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.